Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel and I love true crime. I'm Nick and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week we are doing part two of our request episode, Frank Nitty. Yeah. If you didn't listen last week, Go back and listen to last week if you want to know what's happening. Part one ended with the death of Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak. And this week, we're starting with the kidnapping of Max Factor's shady brother, Jake the Barber, covering the outfit's shakedown of Hollywood, and finally, the death of Frank Nitty himself. Hold on to your butt, Nikki. I feel like that's becoming your new catchphrase. Is Hold it? on to your butt. Do you say that a lot? <laughs> yeah, you say it every episode, I think. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and what I do every episode is bring the love to the table. We want to invite all you guys to follow us on social media. Muriel and I make little bonus content animations to go along with the episodes. Plus, we're new and a small podcast, and we try to follow everyone back and respond to the comments and DMs and all that kind of fun community building stuff. So check us out at Muriel's Murders on IG, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. And if you're enjoying Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. Believe me, it helps us so much more than you will ever know. Plus, we read them and it makes us feel good. (laughs) All right, everyone. Remember, this is going to be a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kinds of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Despite our angelic intentions, we might use some curse words and crack a few jokes. So if you find that stuff offensive, also please consider listening to a different podcast. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. All right, everyone, welcome back. Last week I did so much research that we realized this was a four-hour episode. I'm learning. Yeah, and you're getting good, too. And also, if you didn't listen to part one, my family's from Sicily, so if I make jokes about the mafia or the way Italians are, just know they're my jokes. <laughs> okay. Go back and listen to part one. You'll, the context was there for you. Okay, okay, great. Now we all know what your jokes are about. Okay, <laughs> okay great. great. It's good. Okay, so the year is 1933. Yes. We are in Chicago. Frank Nitty has taken over for Al Capone. Yes. He's slaughtered all his enemies Mm -hmm. and he has one person left who is this very prominent Irish bootlegger named Roger Toohey. Right. So we're going to start off by talking about how Frank Nitty and the outfit framed Roger Toohey for kidnapping. I love it because Nitty's smart. He's a trickster. He comes he up with he comes up with some crazy ass schemes. <laughs> we learned that Nitty is actually really bookish. Yeah, he is super yeah. bookish. And now you're gonna kind of see him free flowing in his own bookish vibe. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, just going off script here. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So we all know who Max Factor is, right? That's what we talked about last week. You did mention at the end it's a is his name Max Factor, the guy who made It's a guy named uh-huh. Max Factor and he also made the makeup, right, that we all still use today. 
Yeah, every single one of us. <laughs> <laughs> so Max Factor, right? He's an actual guy. He immigrated from Russia to the U.S., where he settled in Los Angeles in 1909, mm-hmm. and then he started selling stage makeup. So this is a fun fact. Yeah, the U.S. government actually bought a ton of his makeup to use for camouflage in World War II. Damn, that's some good ass makeup. Yeah, and that's how he got like his big break. That's how he like got this big government contract mm-hmm. and became this mega makeup dude. Does that make you feel more confident about how beautiful you would look wearing Max Factor or less? If you're like, this is supposed to look like what? Mud and bushes? No, no, no. You're beautiful no matter what. <laughs> so Max Factor, the man, has a shady ass brother named John Jake the Barber Factor. Jake the Barber was this lifelong grifter. So mm-hmm. he conned people in North America, Europe, Africa and Canada over the course of about 20 years. Damn. Now, in 1933, he was hiding out in the U.S. for committing a massive stock scam in England. So he created this (laughs) fake company called Wilson and Company. Yeah. And he tricked thousands of Brits into investing in essentially worthless penny stocks. Yeah. Promising them a 12% return on their their investments. Yeah. So it's basically like a ponzi scheme okay so the first handful of investors got some money back and then everyone else got jacked for their money but jake the barber ended up coming up on top fled the country with eight million which in today's money is about 94 million dollars damn so it was a lot of money how do you get the name the barber this fool seems like a financial schemer you know i couldn't figure that out yeah he also has just tons of connections with the mob he's like connected to jimmy hoffa Mm -hmm. he's ran casinos like but i can't really find anything that tells me the whole story yeah at least in the research that i did i gotta say jake the barber factor is a pretty gangster ass name i think so so jake lands in chicago on december 1932 with his millions of dollars Mm -hmm. and settles down in chicago and he's Buddies with several members of the outfit. I don't know how, but he already was buddies with them. Mm -hmm. And the British government is trying to get their hands on Jake. Mm -hmm. He's he's left the country and they've tried him in absentia. So they already held the trial for him. And he's guilty. They convicted him and sentenced him to 24 years in jail. (laughs) Yeah, good luck finding him. Right. Well, you know, they kind of know where he is. They know he's in Chicago. Uh So they're fighting to extradite him. They want to get their hands on him. And Jake the Barber fights the extradition all the way up to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So he does not want to go back and serve this jail time. I have one question. Sorry. Is he a Russian citizen? You said they're from Russia. I think they originally were from Russia and then immigrated to the U.S. So I think he's a U.S. citizen, Mm. if I remember correctly. Great. Yeah. So he finally has an extradition hearing. He's nervous about it. The hearing is set for April 18th. 1933 so being crazy like a fox jake the barber arranged to have his son jerome fake kidnapped in chicago on the day of the hearing so jerome gets kidnapped nobody knows where he is eight days later wait hold on just like as a sympathy thing they're like okay we won't try to extradite you your son just got kidnapped we're gonna slow the whole thing down yeah they had to cancel the trial he's like my kid's gone i have to find my son Mm. 
I feel like I wonder if that would work with today's criminals. I don't know. A lot of this stuff doesn't seem like it would work today. Yeah. So eight days later, Jake and a bunch of the guys from the outfit claimed they saw Jerome in the back of the car. They chased the car down, rescued him. But wouldn't you know it? The kidnappers got away and none of them saw the faces of the kidnappers. <laughs> and Jake apparently paid the quote unquote kidnappers a ransom of $50,000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably what he paid to the outfit to arrange the kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, right. Correct? Great. So sympathetic to his plight, the U.S. government moved his extradition trial to October of that year so he could get over the stress of the kidnapping. Damn, they kicked it from April all the way to October? Yeah. So, like, he definitely bought himself some time. Mm -hmm. But... Jake ultimately knows he's not going to be able to beat the extradition. Mm -hmm. So with this new trial date looming in the near future, he had this huge big brain moment. <laughs> he was going to kidnap himself. <laughs> so Jake the barber. Hold on, sorry. During this whole time, is his brother like having success with the makeup yeah, business? Like and he's in LA, like being a successful makeup <laughs> like selling makeup to the movie stars and everything yeah, yeah and his brother's just being an absolute scoundrel across he's, the globe he is such a scoundrel <laughs> okay great. he stole 94 million dollars <laughs> and i've read in a few places like i couldn't really get anything super specific yeah but it looks like he also scammed some of the royal family in the same scheme <laughs> Oh, my God. I just want to get a haircut from this guy, you know, talk to him, catch up with him. <laughs> yeah, right. So Jake the Barber paid the outfit to stage a kidnapping. And on June 30th, 1933, Jake the Barber was abducted in the suburb of Morton Grove in front of a restaurant called Dell's Roadhouse. All right. So Dell's was this wild ass gambling dance hall slash restaurant. <laughs> um, and I, I read a little bit about it. It's just the greatest place. So the owner, the one of the owners was murdered by his lover in 1925. And then the dance hall got bombed in 1929, probably by a pineapple bomb. Uh -huh. And then it got burned down and then they rebuilt it. And they had bands coming through with like 50 piece orchestras. Yeah. Was, just one of those like big swinging ass places. Exactly. And they had like a casino. It was all this real. it was a really cool wild place. Muriel, when is prohibition ending? Uh, 1933. Okay. So yeah. it's back. They're, they're boozing again legally. Actually, no. Mm -hmm. uh, prohibition was lifted in December of 1933. So we're at the tail end. Oh my God. You know that it was the most cracking New Year's Eve in the history of the of America. Well, I think they do. That's why they keep bombing it, burning it down. It just got pretty wild. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah, escalating. Right. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting about Dell's Roadhouse is that it was kind of under the control of Al Capone at the time, is what most people think, but it was actually in Roger Toohey's territory. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of stuff that went down there, there were shootings and confrontations that were escalating the battle between Frank Nitti and... Roger Toohey. Yeah. So it's it's a very like hot spot. Well, my understanding too is the outfit is way more powerful than Toohey or any of the Irish mobsters. They are for sure. Yeah. But Toohey now is the most powerful of that group that right. has now been kind of blown up. 
he's their biggest, most fierce competition. Right, even exactly. Even though he's small compared to them. Right. And specifically, he's into bootlegging. Right. And so his efforts aren't necessarily spread across a lot of vice, as far mm-hmm. as I know. He's mm-hmm. like the bootlegger guy. And so that's where their main conflict lies. Sure. And at this casino also, Jake the Barber was a high roller. Uh-huh. And he was there a lot. And I've heard at times he's won up to a million dollars. Damn. But I don't know if that's true because that's so much money back then. But I've read a few articles that say that that's an estimate of what he was winning in the casino. Wow. I mean, he definitely has a lot to gamble. He's 94 <laughs> other millions of dollars. <laughs> right. So basically the idea is Jake the Barber was at Dell's Roadhouse and he was at a party. Somebody had thrown him a party in his honor. Mm -hmm. So they were kicking it super loud. Everything was crazy. He came outside and got into the car that his son was driving, Jerome was driving. And before his wife could get into the car for them to go home, a bunch of unknown gangsters yanked him out of the car and took them into a different car and then drove him away. So he's gone. Nobody knows where he is. When you first told the story about Jerome getting kidnapped, I just pictured this little kid, not someone who can drive a car. No, he's not a little kid. I mean, everybody in this story is just so shady. He's just a normal guy. He's just an adult also helping with crime. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But at this point, Jake the Barber's gone. And then he resurfaces a few weeks later on July 12th, claiming to have paid around $100,000 in ransom to Tui and his associates for his release. Mm -hmm. This is... Roger Tui kidnapped me because I was in his territory. I'm affiliated with the outfit and with Nitty. So he kidnapped me and he made me pay him $100,000, which is like, I think around $2 million in today's money. It's yeah. a lot of money. Who's he saying that to? The police? The police. Uh-huh. So he has people from the outfit coming to the police station saying, we saw him get kidnapped in this car. Jerome is saying it. His wife is saying it. I love how the story behind all this is Al Capone gangsters being like, yeah, this kidnapping happened right in front of us. We didn't see the guy's faces. We couldn't stop it. The police are like, all you do is use brute force and intimidation to get whatever you want every time you want something. And suddenly your friend is kidnapped or his son is kidnapped. And you're like, I don't know what happened. My hands are tied. Well, whatever it was, it worked. Because in February 1934, Roger Toohey was convicted of kidnapping and sentenced to 33 years. So the outfit did get what they wanted using brute force and intimidation, It was a huge, huge grift. Like, Uh the trial was basically a sham. Everyone's just... I mean, I won't go into the details, but Jake the Barber couldn't pick Tui out of a lineup. <laughs> but somehow still was like, it was Tui. Right. <laughs> Based on the outfit coming in and being like, no, no, it's that guy. Like, well, who was the mayor at this time? Because Nitty probably, let's face it, had Sir Mac killed, right? And Sir Mac was with the Irish. So who's the mayor? Like, who's in charge of the police force at the time? Are they in Nitty's, in, in Nitty's pocket? You know, I don't. No, Uh I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think at this point, given what he's about to get away with for the next few years, (laughs) I don't think that it's a very oppositional mayor. (laughs) That's my guess. Okay. But basically, Needy won. Yeah. Tui lost a bunch of his appeals. He made a couple escape attempts. 
And he ended up serving about 20 years of the sentence for yeah. the bogus kidnapping until in 1954, a federal judge ordered his release on the grounds that the trial was basically a complete scam. <laughs> <laughs> so Tui was released in November 1959 and then shot to death on his sister's porch a month later on December 17th. Do they know who killed him? No. Oh, fuck, man. Well, he, I mean, I feel I just, you know, that's tragic and sad on some level, but he was also a violent, crazy gangster, right? Like, we're painting the picture of the Chicago outfit as the primary force of violence and aggression and sort of, like, death, but... No, Tui was trying to kill fools. Tui <laughs> went into the roadhouse on different occasions to try to kill Al Capone and Al Capone's guys tried to kill Nitty. I mean, yeah. he's not he's not like this really peaceful guy. Yeah. He's not just like some nice bootlegger just trying to make an honest way in a dirty world. No, but I mean, that is a way to go. Yeah. They got him on a charge that like even the British government was like, obviously he didn't get kidnapped. His <laughs> yeah. son was just kidnapped on his trial date. Yeah. And now conveniently he's kidnapped again. And the reason why he didn't have to Go, we'll talk about this a little bit. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, well, as for Jake the Barber, his extradition trial was moved to December. He lost it, uh -huh. but he ended up getting out of his extradition anyway, in part because he was needed to testify in Tui's trial for kidnapping. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, sorry, I can't go to your country and face any jail time. I have to be in here making sure someone else goes to jail for a crime they actually didn't commit that I sort of invented. Yeah, and they were like, he's a grifter. Come <laughs> yeah. on, he, we're mad at him because he grifted us, <laughs> and now he's grifting you. Yeah, there were some complications about how long he was held mm -hmm. for the trial, and I guess if you're held for longer than two months, then they have to you know, vacate the trial. I don't really understand it, uh -huh. but there was a bunch of technicalities to let him get out of it. So he ended up moving back to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for mail fraud for another scheme. So he really just kept doing stuff. You know, it's funny that it's mail fraud just because obviously Al Capone's big thing was like, they caught him for tax evasion and Nitty, the only jail time he ever spent, or at least so far in this story is for tax evasion. Yeah. And then someone like this, it's like mail fraud. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Well, he spent six years in prison for mail fraud in the U S and didn't spend a single year in prison for defrauding people for $8 million. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and just to uh, wrap up the max factor legacy, mm -hmm. max factors, grandson and heir to the max factor money. Andrew Luster is actually a super huge piece of garbage. Really? He was on trial for drugging women with GHB, raping them, and then taping the assaults in 2002. So before the trial, he made bail. Mm. It was a $100 million bail, fled to Puerto Vallarta, was tried and convicted in absentia, and then he was captured in Puerto Vallarta in June 2003 by Dog the Bounty Hunter. <laughs> really? Yeah, who got in a ton of trouble for doing it. Why? Because he didn't do it legally. <laughs> he yeah. had like a like a Mexican cop yeah. like from around there that was like helping him. Mm -hmm. And he thought that meant he had jurisdiction, I guess, but he just absolutely didn't. Did he do it for his TV show? Like, was it filmed and everything? I don't everything? think it was filmed, but Dog definitely caught him and then he got in a lot of trouble for doing it. Did this guy eventually go to prison? Yeah, he's currently serving a 50-year prison sentence in California. And also, mm -hmm. he's now bankrupt after the women 
successfully sued him for $40 million. Oh, that's great. So, and then is he also cut out of the makeup wealth? I'm assuming uh, if $40 million bankrupted him, he's probably out. You know what I mean? Like, right. Because probably that company is worth way more than that. And if yeah. he was the heir to that throne, then 40 million wouldn't bankrupt him. Right. I mean, we don't know how don't millionaires know work. <laughs> it just sounds like, yeah, whatever it is. It's like you have a business and you sell things. You're worth way more than 40 million. Well, it's just the end of the line. For right. Them. Yeah. Oh man. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Especially for max factor. This guy's like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Will everyone just fucking stop? Just I invented makeup. <laughs> everyone loves me. All you guys have to do is not be horrible to other human beings, and you guys can kind of have whatever you want. He's like, hold my Red Bull. I'm sorry. Also, did Jake the Barber just die peacefully in old age after his jail sentence? I'm not sure how he died, but he did not go went quiet into that good night whatever oh, yeah. that moment <laughs> he like went and ran some casinos mm-hmm. for different um really high level mob bosses for some new york people mm. at one point he was running the stardust which is a really big casino. in vegas yeah, yeah. and he made like a hundred million dollars doing that being the front for this thing and then i don't know i mean i could do so much research on this guy he's such a nutbag yeah but i think generally speaking he grifted until he died (laughs) yeah right and i don't know why nobody wanted to kill him (laughs) okay so back to nitty yeah this is the state of the union for nitty prohibition is ending he's cut contact with capone he's fully taken over the outfit the North Side Gang is crushed. Teddy Newberry and Mayor Cermak are dead. And Roger Tui is in prison serving a 33-year sentence for a fake kidnapping. Yeah. So they he said, you want to shoot me? I'll just show you what I can do. Right. Because even in that year, he was doing the crazy bombing campaign with all the pineapples. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, he's really like was upset that year. <laughs> and when you say he had cut ties with Al Capone, is that because Al Capone is in Alcatraz and going crazy at this time? Yes, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. I think, like I said, I don't know if anybody has mapped his mental decline, yeah. but it sounds like that possibly could have been something that was happening around this time. Mm-hmm. And right, they moved him to Alcatraz. So he was already cut off. There were yeah. some people that were still in contact with him, but essentially Nitty stopped sending him messages and stopped receiving messages. Mm -hmm. So at this point, things are turning from power struggles to money. Mm -hmm. The outfit is in need of new revenue to replace bootlegging. And Nitty had a wild ass idea. Yeah. He was going to rob Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah, those little weak-ass West Coasters. It turns out it was really easy. (laughs) So this is arguably one of the biggest cases of extortion in U.S. history. It's Mm. really, really big. Yeah. Frank Nitti orchestrated the takeover of entertainment unions and created a system of bribery that netted millions of dollars and involved the biggest movie studios in Hollywood. Man, I know. It's so hard not just to be like, cool, this rocks. So the outfit 
wasn't really interested in movies until talkies came out around 1927. So like when you're thinking about all this stuff, realize like movies didn't have talking. Yeah. The mobster's like, I'm not going to go read this black and white thing. They started talking. They're like, Hey, have you heard of this movies thing? It's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's also just wild to think about that's how far, like far ago that was, how long ago that was. Right. So the outfit owned some movie theaters around, but they were, kind of looking more at the big picture at this point. So Nitty does his research thing and he's reading trade magazines and union bylaws and stuff. And he developed a plan to infiltrate basically all the entertainment related unions. Mm -hmm. He saw the film industry's potential to be extorted because the daily profit in movies at the time was in the millions, right? But because of the Great Depression, the 15-year-old film industry was really vulnerable in terms of cash flow mm-hmm. and labor. Right. It's a really fresh new thing that was happening. Right. And he's really good at infiltrating unions when they're vulnerable. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that that's the best part to kind of go on the attack for anything. Yeah. Right? It's like right. when when they're a little vulnerable. So it's a combination of it's a brand new industry. The great depression is happening and everything is really wild, right? Mm -hmm. Money is crazy for everyone. It's like volatile, volatile. unpredictable. Exactly. And talkies are coming out. Mm -hmm. So now he's seeing that this movie thing could be huge, huge, huge. Right. And on top of that, L.A. itself at the time was having a problem with super corrupt officials. Uh So there was this guy, the mayor at the time was Mayor Frank Shaw. And he was so crooked that he ended up being the first mayor of a major city to be recalled in U.S. history. So he was very crooked mayor. (laughs) (laughs) And the chief of police, James Davis, was also really corrupt. He had a bunch of ties to vice in LA. He also orchestrated some car bombings and some beatings. Mm -hmm. And he was a huge supporter of Hitler at the time. (laughs) So he was just a giant asshole. (laughs) And then uh, the last guy, the DA, apparently, I couldn't read too much about him, but I read an article and there was a member of the L.A. Chamber of Commerce who wrote a letter to their senator from California saying that the L.A. District Attorney Baron Fitz was a psychopath, whatever that means. Right. And there wasn't <laughs> much organized crime, right? There wasn't a lot. I think New York was around uh-huh. at that time, but I don't think that they were like huge in the West Coast. Yeah. So basically, this is just the perfect opportunity for Nitty. Exactly. It's like all of the right elements. Exactly. Yeah. And Nitty's grand plan, essentially, is that after taking over the entertainment unions, the outfit could use planned strikes to Mm -hmm. extort money from movie theaters. So that's, there's a lot more that's going to happen, and Mm -hmm. we'll kind of go through it, but that's the basic meat and potatoes of the extortion. Sorry, they wanted to extort movie theaters or studios? All of them. Oh, cool. Projectionists. I mean, mean, it's like... (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Like kind of all aspects of the movie theater distribution. Uh Uh-huh. The entire industry. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Because when you said that in the beginning, all I could think of was the Godfather thing when, uh, you know, they They put the horse in the bed. Yeah. And they send Tom out to L.A. to say, like, you need to give this guy this role. And I figured, well, if they're paying movie stars millions of dollars, they may be extorting people in situations like that. But of course, this makes perfect sense. Right. It's give them the role. But I think it's way more about like. Yeah. Well, we'll go into it. Can I also just say the actor that plays the 
Hollywood executive that gives the most epic all-time rant in which he just strings together every Italian slur like a machine gun. He's just like, it's pretty incredible. As an Italian-American, I can tell you uh, it was glorious. Uh, that scene or that series of scenes yeah. of like him waking up with the horse head in his yeah. bed is just chef's kiss. Great. great. I mean, <laughs> Delicious. <we all> <laughs> um, okay, so this is how the whole extortion thing started. There's a man named Willie Bioff, and he was a 200-pound buff monster working in Chicago with his partner, George Brown. Mm -hmm. So the pair called themselves B&B, very cute. <laughs> and they sold protection to chicken dealers in the Fulton Street Market in Chicago. So they're like, hey, want me to protect your chickens? And then they take all their money. Right? Right. They're like, hey, if you pay me, I won't punch your chickens. <laughs> so Beoff was the muscle and Brown was more of the negotiator. And mm. eventually... After dealing with this extortion of the chicken guys, they realized they were going to be great at also extorting unions. <laughs> <laughs> One got to do the punching, the other got to do the talking. So they go through, they start infiltrating different unions and trying to get kip, kickbacks. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point in 1935, Bioff, our giant 200-pound monster, murders the head of the projectionist union, Fuck. which is a big deal because back then any strike in the projectionist union could cripple the cash strapped movie industry. Right. So that was a really key union for them to take control over. And of course that gets Nitty's attention. Mm. Based on Nitty's research, he understood sort of this linchpin move that Bioff made and was like, let's work together. You're going to be my associate. You're going to be the head of this operation that we're going to back. That is a very Hollywood exec move on Nitty's part. He's like, you have a great idea? Hold on, I'm your man. Let's get rich together off that Exactly. <laughs> so the outfit hooks up with B&B &B and they go on from there. The outfit helped get Brown elected president of this really powerful union. It's the IASTE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees Union. Mm -hmm. So now that he was the president, he then made Bioff the boss of a the local union branches in LA. That is crazy that they went from very small time extortionists to very big time power players. Yeah, it's the American dream, baby. Damn. So Bioff, now the boss of these local unions, goes off to LA to start the big time shakedown. Mm -hmm. And that's where he would spend the next few years. He just taking over unions, threatening strikes to studio heads, getting like cuts of different raw film production. He was doing all kinds of things in LA. Mm. And Bioff shook down studio heads for $250,000, which is about $4.8 in today's money, mm -hmm. in the first three weeks oh of being God. out in LA. Damn. And he got the money from 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, RKO Studios, and Paramount Studios. And no one even fought him about it. <laughs> they just gave him the money. They were like, we've been waiting for someone to come to do this. I guess I guess you're the first one in the door. Here Makes you go. Sense. And Nitty was just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was right. In 1936, 
The outfit and Nitty instituted a 2% tax on union wages for a fake-ass union defense fund. That brought in around $2 million in two years, which is close to $40 million in today's money. Fuck. And they also branched out. Like I said, they were collecting commissions on the sales of raw material, like raw film. They were doing all kinds of percentages wherever they could find in the industry. Mm-hmm. And after a while... Bioff and the outfit started playing both sides. They were taking bribes from the studio execs to stop strikes and squash certain union demands. <laughs> so they were doing it both ways. One estimate is that through those bribes, studios saved 15 million. So about 300 million in today's money in potential wage increases. Whoa. I'm not going to get super far into it because I think it's technical and a little bit maybe too tangential, but it really messed up unions for a long time in yeah. entertainment. And there's a lot of, you know, still like a lot of things that are residual that weaken unions because of this event. Well, there's a lot of arguments to be made that the mob's involvement in unions across all industries in this country irrevocably, is that the word? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe. What are you trying crippled, to say? Crippled the ability for people to unionize and people's faith in unions. And the, you know, suddenly it was sort of implanted in a certain level of our consciousness that they were manipulatable and couldn't be trusted. Right. I mean, it, it is striking doing this research and reading these books because I had no idea how many industries were unionized. I there know. Were, the bartender's union. You know, like there's so basically every job had this collective bargaining power. Right. And it's just so rare now. You know, it's, it's just so, I mean, obviously we know it's just, there's so much less of that. All right. So there are two brothers. They're the Shank brothers who between themselves controlled both MGM and 20th Century Fox around this time. So they're very powerful. Mm -hmm. And they actually brokered a deal with the outfit to incorporate the bribes and extortion into the studio's yearly production budget. (laughs) So it became like, they were just like, well, this sounds great to me. I mean, you guys are getting a good deal, but we're getting a great deal. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think companies are doing that now with coming up with ransoms for cyber attacks they're working in the ransoms into their budgets because it's cheaper a lot of the times to pay off these hackers than it is to put in place the type of security it would take to keep them out. Woof. But I'm going to stop adding unresearched information into this. (laughs) This is supposed to be true crime, not Nick read an article and remembers a thing and inserts it into Muriel's true crime story. Well, you're doing a great job. You're adding a lot of color, but now... (laughs) Maybe be quiet for a little bit. <laughs> so Nitty got Paramount, Warner Brothers, RKO Studios, Columbia Pictures, Universal Pictures, and even little studios like Lowe's on board mm-hmm. with all of his extortion stuff by throwing stink bombs into crowded theaters and also initiating little waves of work disruption to give them a taste of what a strike could look like. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, at least the book that I read credited Nitty with as being something that he started to pioneer Mm -hmm. ways of not quite going there, but orchestrating like ways of just here's a taste of a strike and here's a taste of a strike. We're just going to put you behind a little bit. What does it look like when one garbage truck leaves all the garbage in the middle of your street? Can you imagine if every garbage truck did that? Right. 
And eventually, Nitty's men entered into the world of strike breaking, right? So they're organizing men with chains and baseball bats to break inconvenient profit losing strikes in Los Angeles. Mm. Some unions in LA countered by recruiting their own thugs. They were recruiting longshoremen who were super down for the cause and ready to bust heads in the name of labor rights, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is awesome. Eventually, after a lot of skirmishes, the outfit comes out on top, but it's not a good look. It's really violent. Mm-hmm. So according to our source book, they ended up switching tactics and holding a press conference publicly labeling all union strikers as communists. Mm. So after this... SAG actors avoided the picket lines and people kind of distanced themselves from that struggle. Yeah. And the most of the strikes fizzled out at that time. Historically, when did McCarthyism happen and all the Hollywood elite being called communists and therefore getting kicked out of the industry and all that the stuff? The Red Scare, that period in Hollywood yeah. happened in the 50s. Uh-huh. So it was later. But I think we're still kind of in the midst or ramping up to World War II right. at this point. So, I mean, a lot of that stuff is in the air. Definitely not chill to be called a communist. <laughs> <laughs> not, I guess, not in America. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, on October 16th, 1939, while all this stuff is going on, Al Capone was released early from Alcatraz because of his syphilis. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, for the record, it looks like Nitty didn't really do anything to help get Capone out. In fact, one of Nitty's buddies was Easy Eddie O'Hare. He was a lawyer who provided information to the IRS that helped them convict Capone of tax evasion. Really? Yes. And Easy Eddie did not get murdered for that. Hmm. And people knew. So Easy Eddie was around on relatively good terms with the outfit. Probably being protected by Nitty. Well, until he was liquidated very shortly after Capone's release. (laughs) Is that Muriel uh, Mafia term for (laughs) murdered? Yeah, that's like when you're murdered, but you're like a a liability. Uh It's just like, well, get rid of that guy. (laughs) Shouldn't laugh, but... So traditionally, members of the outfit would get a coming out party when they're released from prison, Mm -hmm. and Al Capone did not. He got no party. Nobody met him, and he sort of quietly went back to his estate in Miami where he lived out the rest of his life. Wow. Is that, I, it's got to be because people were just scared to be associated with him, and... I don't really know. This is how I read it, Mm -hmm. is he's a liability, you know, he's severely affected by this advanced stage syphilis and mm-hmm. what it's done to his brain. And he's has a lot of respect. So nobody wants to kill him. Right. You know, he just did time on behalf of the outfit in right. a sense. I mean, he just did time. He didn't rat on anyone. He did his time. He got out. There's no reason for anyone to be mad at him. But at the same time, you know, it's weird, <laughs> like awkward to go be like, hey, man, how are you? Can't have your job back, but we're glad you're here. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think that in some ways that absence of communication is an acknowledgement of the fact that they don't think he's a threat anymore. Yeah, definitely. Did you come across anything about Nitty and Capone being buddy buddy like they have the similar background they're both in the same gang although at different times back in brooklyn well they were really close they worked together in all the chicago time. they were yeah. together all the time he was his bodyguard yeah. and then his number two and then he yeah. takes over the outfit so i mean like they were really close i mean remember they are 13 years apart and they have very different lifestyles so yeah. i don't know 
what that means. But I read a passage about how Nitty would talk to him really aggressively. You know, he'd be like, Mm. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Just listen to me. and Like he talked to him in ways that no one else would talk to Al Capone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that they were close. Yeah. But also that's the name of the game, you know? I, I don't, right, of course. I don't yeah. think he feels like, oh, I hope he didn't hurt his feelings. <laughs> <laughs> also, fun fact, the O'Hare Airport uh-huh. is named after Easy Eddie's son. Why? What'd he do? He was a pilot in World War II and he received a Medal of Honor and he died in action. So Interesting. He's Easy Eddie's O'Hare's son. Yeah. O'Hare Airport. R.I.P. So Capone gets out of jail, and then on November 19th, 1940, Frank Nitti's 38-year-old wife, Anna, died. So the two were very close, and her death was completely unexpected. And they say it's an internal ailment. I've read that people speculate that it was also some kind of form of colitis, something similar to what Cermak died of. Wow. Um, That's so sad. Yeah. I mean. It's super sad. They had a an adopted son, I think. Really? Mm-hmm. What was the story there? They just weren't able to have children, so they adopted a kid from an unwed young mother. I think he was around eight when, he was a young kid when she died. Yeah. So we have this kind of debilitating blow. Anna died. And then the next year, the Hollywood dream scheme fell apart. Mm-hmm. So Bioff really lived it up in L.A., our big monster guy. Yeah, yeah. And he bought a massive house. He dressed up in what would have been $3,000 suits in today's money. He was obviously suspicious for a humble union representative. <laughs> he literally had three solid gold diamond-studded union membership cards. <laughs> And one of the Shank brothers actually yeah. gave Biop $100,000, which is around $2 million today, yeah. to buy an 80-acre ranch in Woodland Hills for his wife, Lori. And uh, Biop filled it with bodyguards and had like an army of bodyguards in this compound. Oh, man. I love the power move of having a business card. <laughs> That's impressive with diamonds. Like, this is my business card. I'm going to need that back. <laughs> That's not a keeper. <laughs> yeah, he was very fond of saying, quote, it's the union that's rich, not Willie Bioff. <laughs> All right, dude. In 1941, after seeing Bioff running in exclusive circles wearing $3,000 suits, an investigative reporter started looking into Bioff and ended up breaking the whole extortion story wide open. Mm-hmm. In 1941, Bioff and Brown were convicted of extortion and one of the Shank brothers was convicted of perjury. And they sent them to jail. (laughs) Frank Nitti remarried in July of 1942. So I believe this is 18 months later to Antoinette Carvetta. This is Tony Carvetta. This is Easy Eddie O'Hare's former fiance. Okay. I see it. I see what's going on here. (laughs) So could have been a connection there. Maybe it had nothing to do with Capone. He just liquidated him because he wanted his girl. Oh, in 19- Wait, was he dead at this point? O'Hare was dead at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, man. Were they engaged when he was killed? Yeah. Oh, my God. Nitty. Frank. It's too much, Frank. No, I mean, it was probably because of Capone. They were like, that's too disrespectful to leave him alive when Capone gets out of prison. Mm. I think that that was the idea. About two weeks before, I think, Capone was 
released. Yeah. O'Hare was killed. Mm. I think that that's really what it was, but who knows? Did they ever get any retribution against the journalist who exposed everything? No, not that I read. Mm -hmm. Nothing like that. But in 1943, B.F., Brown, and Shank all agreed to testify for reduced sentences. And they ratted out everyone, including Nitty, and remember the future outfit leader, Paul the Waiter Rica. Mm. So there were a series of trials where basically all the major studio heads testified to millions of dollars they made in extortion payments. And Nitty and his crew were faced with such overwhelming evidence they didn't even take the stand to defend themselves. It yeah. was just way, way, way too much. <laughs> on March 6th, 1943, Nitty and company were indicted on federal racketeering charges and mail fraud, pretty much blowing up the outfit's entire leadership and decapitating the Chicago family. <sighs> Came out to Hollywood for those big dreams, flash in the pan, down the toilet it goes. <laughs> <laughs> On March 19th, 1943, the day before his scheduled indictment, Frank Nitty would be found dead in a train yard. A train yard? Yeah. Most historians believe his cause of death to be suicide. I think that that's the universally held opinion. The author of my book says that there is evidence to suggest there was foul play. Yeah. But we're just going to talk about Nitty's state of mind. So he was more than likely being blamed for the Hollywood scheme going to absolute shit. And there were rumors that he had a falling out with Paul Rica. So from what I've read, Paul Rica felt like Nitty should take the fall for the extortion scheme mm -hmm. because it was his idea. And if he did take the fall, then potentially we could get off and continue to run the outfit. Mm -hmm. And that Nitty was saying, because of the way the charges have come down, that's not an option. Like I can't take the fall for you. You're going to have to serve time no matter what. Yeah. And then they got into a huge fight. So that's what I've read, but nobody really knows. Right. Because that's all happening before behind closed doors. Right. But that's kind of the idea is that Nitty is kind of this really intelligent guy. And he's like, Rika, I can't take the blame, dude. <laughs> yeah, That's right. not how this works. Yeah, right. <laughs> Rika's like, oh, I'm mad at you. <laughs> but who knows if that's exactly what happened. But okay. that's the idea. Yeah. And Nitty had also done prison time. He did 15 months earlier and didn't take it well by most accounts. Right. So he could just have not wanted to go back to prison. He was dealing with the death of his first wife, Anna, and that was just 18 months earlier. Yeah. So, you know, he was still wearing black clothes often and, you know, mourned for a while, even after he remarried pretty quickly. Yeah. And the last thing is, is that he allegedly had some chronic health problems. Some people said it was cancer. Others say it was potentially damage from his shooting in 1933. But based on photographs, I will say his body looks really emaciated during the time of his death. So yeah. they have pictures of him and it almost doesn't look like the same person. Uh -huh. So it seemed like a really rapid decline from 1933 to 1943. In those 10 years, he like aged so much. It's heavy how many of the people in this story just had health problems. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, that's how it was back then. Yeah. I think. On the day of his death, Nitty had lunch with his second wife, Tony, in their Riverside home. And afterwards, he asked her to go to church for a bit. So she left around 1.15. 
and then Nitty drank a fair amount of alcohol, which was not typical for him. Hmm. He put on long johns because it's usually still horrifically cold in Chicago in March. Yeah. And then he put on a really nice three-piece suit, a plaid overcoat, and an expensive fedora. And he put his 32 caliber snub-nosed Colt revolver in his pocket and left the house. When Tony returned at 3.30, Nitty was gone. But he would go on long walks pretty often, so she was not worried about it. Frank walked about a mile to the North Riverside, Illinois Central Railway Yard, and there were a couple workers in the yard who saw him drunkenly pass by. The men yelled at him when he walked in front of an oncoming train, and they thought Nitty had been hit, but pretty quickly after the train passes, they hear gunshots. So they're thinking Nitty is aiming at them, trying to shoot them, so the men take cover. But when they look up, they realize Nitty was just trying to shoot himself in the head. 57-year-old Frank the Enforcer Nitty then sat down on the ground, leaned against a chain-link fence, and shot himself once in the fedora, once in the jaw, and finally once through his ear and into his brain. Nitty was buried in the Mount Carmel Cemetery near Al Capone and a bunch of guys from the Northside gang and also Roger Toohey. He was buried there about a decade and a half later. Wow. About seven months later, after Nitty's death, on December 23rd, 1943, the rest of Nitty's top-level associates were found guilty of extortion and each got about 10 years in federal prison. But they were all out by 1947, just four years later, as a result of a crap ton of bribes <laughs> and a few other helping hands. In the end, President Harry Truman helped arrange their early parole. Nobody knows why, yeah. but their lawyer had been one of his campaign managers. Oh, man. And Harry Truman also pardoned the Shank brother who was in the can for perjury. Yeah. And he was quickly reinstalled at Fox. <laughs> George Brown from the B&B scheme, uh -huh. the brothers, he ended up dying of natural causes in Chicago. Willie Beoff changed his name to William Nelson and moved to Arizona with his wife. Where he became Willie Nelson? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so Biaf did not keep a super low profile. Uh -huh. And at one point, he was even caught hanging out with Senator Barry Goldwater on Goldwater's pl private plane. Yeah. And Goldwater tried to say, oh, I had no idea. I had no idea this guy was Biaf. <laughs> And then later when they were like, obviously, you knew, he goes, well, I'm doing some research on the mob and mob activity. <laughs> yeah, I'm really trying to figure out some some details so I can, uh, you know, get involved and it's, do crime and make money, become powerful because they're friends with me. It's so intense yeah. that senators have private planes. Just like, what? <laughs> However, on November 4th, 1955, Biaf started his car in his Phoenix, Arizona driveway and was blown completely apart by a car bomb. Damn, who it, killed him? His killers were never found. <laughs> well, are you going to give any credence to the potential foul play that this guy suggests that led to Nitty's death? He was just saying like a train yard and how hidden away. It's a perfect place for a murder, uh -huh. for a hit, essentially. Yeah. And that the witnesses were all kind of distracted and not exactly sure what happened. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, is that the gun is pretty hard to shoot. So even though Nitty was pretty drunk, 
he thought it seemed insane that he was able to shoot himself once in the in the jaw uh-huh. because that bullet did enter his brain. So uh-huh. he shot himself underneath the jaw and it came out through the side of his near his temple. Oof. And he was able to then take the gun, re-aim it and shoot himself again. And so he's thought uh, that seems unreasonable. The gun doesn't have a feather trigger uh-huh. or a hair trigger, whatever yeah. you call it. It's a, it's a strong pull that has yeah. to happen. So he thought that seemed unreasonable. Yeah. I mean, also Frank Nitty is great at killing people. You'd think if he was going to kill himself, he might be able to do it in the first shot, not need the three that these guys said they heard or whatever. Right. So, you know. I also feel like... It was pretty obvious that whatever got those guys off after such short jail time was probably in play. Like it would seem like Nitty would probably know about those forces out there in the world that would eventually lead to a shorter jail sentence. Right. But if he's being blamed for the whole thing blowing up in their faces, I'm not sure what he would come home to. Right. I think it's strong evidence that maybe everyone was blaming him. Yeah. You know, that he felt like, oh, I, I can't serve a few years in prison mm-hmm. because I might die in prison or when I come out, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Like, this is the end of the road for me. Yeah. You know, I think those other mobsters, all of his underlings at the outfit should should take a seat. You know, Nitty was the boss. He... Went out to L.A., he innovated this whole new way of making money, and then, okay, it, it crashed and burned, but what were they doing? They weren't doing anything awesome. <laughs> like, oh, it's your fault that the thing you invented <laughs> then suddenly isn't working. Yeah. You know? They need to just take a seat. <laughs> Sit down, guys. <laughs> okay, you're giving me that look. I think this might be the end of your research. Oh my God. Why am I like this? It's the end. Okay. I have so much more, but why, why, why? (laughs) I just, (laughs) there's all this other stuff. Like Nitty's money's gone. Uh He should have had so much money. And like his estate was worth $200,000 or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was really small. And people were like, where's the money, man? And it sounds like his lawyer might have said he was going to keep it for his wife and for his son and kept it for himself. And his lawyer got murdered later by the mob, (laughs) probably in retaliation. So there's like, I mean, there's just things after things after things. But we need to be done. Because (laughs) I started reading this thing and it's like a can of worms. You can't put it back in. So I can tell you what I read. Yes. And then you can laugh at me. All right, great. (laughs) (laughs) So again... Our source material was Frank Nitty, The True Story of Chicago's Notorious Enforcer by Ronald D. Humble. I also read this pretty cool book called The Five Weeks of Giuseppe Zangara, The Man Who Tried to Kill FDR by Blaise Peachy. And then there were just a couple other articles that were very helpful besides Wikipedia and a bunch of random Okay. Archived newspapers. So thank you, LA Times. Okay. Uh, One was Mobsters Muscled into Film Industry by Cecilia Rasmussen for the Los Angeles Times. And then I found this guy's blog that is amazing because he's paid for all of the copies of the archived newspapers that I didn't pay for. Oh, yeah. God bless him. (laughs) I know. And you can find them all online, which is awesome. So the blog is called Along the Gradient. And it's made by a man named Grady Foster. Uh And the title of the blog is Morton Grove Before the Baby Boom, The Complete Story of the Dells 
It's a great blog. Wait, what's the, the complete story of the Dells, that casino restaurant thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah? He was just like really into that place? Did a whole thing I just about that? I don't know why. Yeah. He has like, I, he had maybe 15 articles that's about cool. the Dells all through history. I was like, oh, yeah. this guy's pretty cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's an interesting thing to be into. History, man. Remember we used to go to the Green Mill up in Chicago. Yeah, which is very cool. Yeah, Capone used to hang out there. It's a great club still, I hope, uh, after the pandemic, operating. And then also, speaking of bootlegging in Chicago, Muriel and I used to work at the Green Door Tavern, yeah. which was a super classic historic, um, what do they call it, speakeasy yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. And the reason it's called the Green Door Tavern is because green doors meant that it was a speakeasy. Yeah. Yeah. And the other funny thing about that was by the time we worked there, it was like fully obviously illegal, like historic tavern or whatever. But they actually did operate a little speakeasy in the basement. So tourists would come and say like, ooh, we want to see the speakeasy in the basement. And we'd say, actually, this is the speakeasy. And they'd say, but what about the thing in the basement? And we'd be like, yeah, but that just started like a couple of years ago. That was the party room. <laughs> but everyone just wanted <laughs> Al Capone to have killed someone in the basement or something. It's such a weird thing. Well, I did this for you because I love you. Thank and for you. Marissa because I love her, but I yeah. wanted to give you a good gangster story. Well, I love my wife and I love a gangster story. I didn't know anything about Nitty. I mean, I knew very little about this whole era of the mob. I have been guilty of being very Sicilian centric in what I have chosen to educate myself on. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> <laughs> so it's nice to have a, uh, this story round out my knowledge a bit of something that I'm weirdly obsessed with based on my cultural identity and whatever sort of versions of American manhood our pop culture has given to me and all this <laughs> all kind right, of stuff. Thank you. You know? Well, this is a love letter to you, so take it because you're not getting another one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this Muriel's Murders love letter to me. Muriel did all the research. I did all the recording, engineering, and post-production. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.com slash Muriel's Murders. And again, find us on social media at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. We put out uh, what I think are brilliant little animations. They are. And uh, and we'd like to follow you back and um, and get to know you a little bit. Plus, our DMs are open, and you can email us at murielsmurders at gmail.com. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, please check out our non-murder podcast, Hell in Your 30s, comes out every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. That's it. Arrivederci. Oh Hey, Oscar, Rachel, do you like Disney movies? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen all of them? Yeah, we saw all the Disney animated movies. And we saw all the Pixar animated movies, too. How about the DCOMs? What? what? The Disney Channel original movies. You should listen to our podcast, Inside the Disney Vault, because we are watching all of them in chronological order. Yeah, and we do fun segments, like we cast each other. That's right, and my favorite segment, Zaddy Watch, where we rank every single DCOM daddy.
Ooh, you can listen to all this fun stuff on our podcast, Inside the Disney Vault on Campfire Media, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, guys, let's get back in the vault. It's cold out here. Campfire. <laughs> 